if you would, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. The series title is Light, Life, Love, The Gospel We Heard From Him. Light, Life, Love, The Gospel We Heard From Him. And uh, the subtitle for this particular message is God is Greater. God is Greater. And if you want a sub-subtitle, uh, your superpower and why you need it. Okay? So there we go. First John three nineteen, and our uh, we will end today at chapter 4. And verse 6. And if you would join with me in the reading of God's Word. This is how we know that if we belong to the truth and how, uh, that, I'm sorry, that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If or when, ESV says whenever, our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge this Jesus, the one that has come in the flesh, is not from God. That does not acknowledge that is not from God. Um, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts to hear your message from this letter. Apply it to our hearts how each of us need that application. Lord, speak again what you spoke before in our hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are several superpower tests that you can take on the internet to determine what your superpower is. I took one yesterday morning having discovered this, and, and it's put out by the Des Moines Area Community College, I suppose in Iowa. Uh, they say on their website, it must be true, heroes aren't born, they're made with internet questions, quizzes. And it turns out that my superpower is invisibility, which explains to some of you why you can't see me right now. And you're wondering, like, where's that voice coming from, right? Well, many such tests uh, target an audience of kids and are for fun, like the one that I took. Others are intended for corporate interviewing and impact your employment. That concerns me. For the record, to my employer, Gulf Coast, I cannot really become invisible. 
I'm just in case you're wondering. John, the apostle, wants those faithful believers who have remained in the faith, resisted the lies of the false teachers, and labored to love one another to know their real superpower. He wants you to know your true superpower, if you will. The center of our superpower, however, is not in us, but in God, who is our Father, who who dwells in us by the Spirit of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now you might wonder, why do we need a superpower? Well, because we have battles from within and battles from without. Our hearts condemn us within, and the enemy uses seemingly well-meaning people to deceive us from without. John sees something in the disciples in his churches that is common among all Christians. Two problems solved by one superpower. Two problems. That our hearts condemn us, that the enemy wants to deceive us. One solution. Our God is greater. And he knows, loves, and teaches us by the Spirit of his Son within us. Our God is greater. And he knows, loves, and teaches us by the Spirit of his Son within us. In our text today, John wants us to know that God is greater. God is greater than our hearts that condemn. God is greater than heretics that deceive. God is greater than our hearts that condemn. God is greater than heretics that deceive. Um, You see, our, our heart is not successful at condemning us, nor are the heretics successful at deceiving us. Why? Because God is Greater. So let's look under that first heading in verses 19 through 24 of chapter 3 again. God is greater than our hearts that condemn. Look with me at verses 19 through 22 uh, briefly again. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If, or I, I think better, when our hearts condemn us. By the way, it's just a long-standing uh, discussion over whether that should be if or when and That's because the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, they had no spaces between the words. And so if you put a space, one more space in there, you get when or whenever. And if you don't, you get if. And that's the only reason there's a discussion. And all the translations kind of go back and forth on that. But I think context leans toward when. So when our hearts condemn us, if we, and that's when we need our hearts to be set at ease or at rest in his presence, when our hearts condemn us. We know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask, because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. It's interesting. John introduces the solution before he even brings up the problem. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and we set our hearts at rest in His presence. Whatever this is, it helps us know that we are secure in God. John's, this is how, or maybe another way to say it, by this we know, this is how, by this. It can refer forward, it often does in John's letters, refers to what's going to follow, but the context here makes rather clear that it refers backward to verse 18. Dear children, let us not love in, with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This, this what? 
the fact that we are loving with actions and in truth is how we know that we belong to the truth and we set our hearts at rest in his presence. In other words, when we love one another with actions and truth, we know that we belong to the truth and we set our hearts at rest in his presence. That aligns with what John wrote back in chapter 2, verse 3, when he says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And then in verse, the end of verse 5 and 6, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And then in chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right, i.e. loves their neighbor, has been born of him. So we know that we belong to the truth and set our hearts at ease in his presence because, well, looking at our lives, we can see that we love not merely in words, but in actions and in truth. But there's a problem. If our hearts condemn us, or when our hearts condemn us, and surely they will. I know that they will, because that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. What happened right after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree which they had been told not to eat? They heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They hid. Why did they hide? Because they were afraid. Their hearts were condemning them. Legitimately in this case, their hearts were condemning them so they hid from God. We don't have any boldness to approach God if our hearts condemn us, do we? It's vital that we approach God, but the condemnation that our hearts give us often keeps us from doing so. Our hearts still tell us that we need to hide. When Jesus came into the world, he transformed that understanding of God. Sinners came to him and received forgiveness and cleansing. They, They sought him out. He was walking in the garden again, but this time sinners came to him. When it comes to sacrificial love, laying down our lives, listen, the, the needs are so great and we are so limited that we are frequently plagued by the accuser that we are not good enough. It wasn't that long ago we went through the Sermon on the Mount in our series in Matthew last, I believe it was last fall that we were in the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I would have people say to me, and I still have people say to me when, I, when I'll bring up the fact that Jesus calls us to this radical kind of love and not resisting your enemies and forgiving those who harm you and, and giving to those who ask you. And people will regularly ask, yes, but, but where do you stop? I mean, there's so much, like, you've got to qualify that. And I don't. I don't because Jesus didn't. Have you ever noticed the Sermon on the Mount doesn't have all the qualifiers that we think we need to put in there? You see, I get it. I get it why we want to qualify it because we will never meet all the needs. And yes, it would be insane to try to figure out how to meet them all. I mean, for, for crying out loud, we feel guilty in America today because dogs are going hungry. Just watch the commercials. But there's needs everywhere and the needs will always outweigh. But Christ says, give to the one who asks you. Yeah, I, driving home from Georgia the other day, I, every time we'd get off an exit ramp on the highway, there's somebody there with a sign asking for money. And I, 
you know what? I care about the homeless. I help the homeless. I didn't give any of them a thing. And, and, and my heart's torn. Am I supposed to give to this one too? See, there's, there's, the, the, our hearts condemn us, don't they? Even though we might be able to look. So the reality is that there's going to be both legitimate condemnation coming from our hearts and illegitimate condemnation coming from our hearts. I think John's addressing both. See, there's a tension. We are... John wants us to examine our lives and not be deceived into thinking that we're doing just fine. In other words, John doesn't want us to think, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. It's all good. God's got me. God's greater than my heart that's condemning me in the sense that I don't have to pay any attention to that. No, he wants us to say, no, do some due diligence. Make sure that you're walking out the commands of Jesus. Make sure that you're obeying Christ. I mean, he's been pretty firm on that throughout this letter. But he also has said, hey, I write these things so that you don't sin. But if you do, and by the way, you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And his death satisfies the wrath of God for us. So we can go before God and realize that our sins are forgiven. So the ultimate solution in John's mind is that God is greater than our hearts that condemn us. And how do we come to a place where we recognize that, we, that our works, our lives, when we look at them, prove that God is greater than our hearts? It isn't just that God tells me I'm okay, so I'm okay. He clearly tells some that they are not okay. I mean, for instance, had the people that had left the, the community, those that he calls Antichrist, had they gotten this letter and read it and said, oh, we're good, we're good. No, no, John would say, you're not good. But as we examine our lives, God who is light and knows all things shines light in our lives and reveals to us that we are truly loving our neighbor, that we are changing from those who live self-centered or self-absorbed lives into Christ-like agents of of the life of the coming age, that we are people who are not just living for ourselves, that we have been affected by Christ and we are now beginning to lay down our lives for one another. And yes, it's incremental. And yes, it might appear slow at times. But when you stop and you look back at what you once were, Lucas, and you see what God has done, right? You, you, God sets your heart at rest because you are indeed being conformed into the image of Christ. Apparently, God is saying that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything is supposed to set our hearts at ease. How so? I mean, someone might accuse me of one thing, but the accuser of the brethren is right there to tell me a hundred more offenses that could be added to the list. On the surface, the fact that God knows everything seems more likely to drive us into further despair. But remember, as I noted a moment ago, that even when we have legitimate guilt over sin, John's already told us that cleansing is available by the blood of Christ upon our confession. There's also the illegitimate guilt. Any of us seeking to meet real needs have that ever-present sense of not doing enough that we've been talking about. The needs far outweigh our ability to respond. It's not legitimate guilt, but we still must take this to God and place it before Him. He is greater than the condemnation our hearts want to pile on us. It's a bit like a parent who, uh, growing up, did you go through this sense that like 
your mom had a sixth sense, it didn't matter if she was in a different state, she knew what you did that afternoon. You know, it's just like, why did you, it's like, how'd you know? And so you have this kind of sense, and at, when you become a teenager, as a child, you take great comfort in the fact that, you know, mom and dad know everything, they're going to take care of me, and little do you know, right? But, you, you have, but then when you become a teenager, it's like mom and dad know everything, and I'd really rather they didn't, so you start trying to hide your life and, you know, kind of cordon off mom and dad. And then one day you realize that, yes, mom and dad know way more about you. The fact, they probably know you better than you know yourself, but they love me. That's cool. Like, like they still hug me. And so you suddenly you enter into a more mature relationship where you know they know you, but you know they love you and you, you open your life back up to them and you enter into more of an adult relationship with them because of that. And, and that's what John wants us to have with God is yes, God knows us, but when he comes walking in the garden, he's coming to have fellowship with us. He's coming to care for us. We don't need to hide. Christ has made a way. We don't need to hide. Amen. Why is it important for us to know that God is greater than our hearts? Well, according to verse 21, it gives us boldness before God. That's why it's important. Well, why is that important? Well, boldness before God leads to praying effectively. So, knowing that God is greater than our hearts ultimately leads to praying effectively. And by the way, the New Testament is filled with prayers requesting an increase in our ability to love. So if we're going to love people even greater, we need to pray to that end. We need to have the boldness to do so. Our assurance of God's love, therefore, empowers us to love. Our assurance of God's love empowers us to love others. James B. Smith wrote the following. He said, when we grasp the magnitude of God's love for us, we, begin, we will begin to feel it flow out of our hands and feet and mouths and into the lives of others. God has given us His Spirit, a spirit of love that will drive us to care for one another. On the other hand, Karen Jobes in the Zondervan exegetical commentary on the New Testament in, on, on this uh, epistle said, A heart that constantly accuses us of disappointing God will erode our resolve to love and it will keep us from enjoying our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So on the positive side, to have that confidence that God loves us, it empowers us to love. On the negative side, if we don't have that confidence, it will erode our ability, our resolve to love and keep us from enjoying our relationship with God. So it's vital that we know that God is greater than our hearts and that we can rest in his presence because of his great love for us. Read with me then picking up in chapter 3 verse 23 again. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Did John add a new command? I mean, until now, he's mentioned only the command to love one another, do what he says, you know, those kinds of things. But now he throws in to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Like, well, wait, wait, you just threw in an extra command. But no, he didn't actually. When asked the greatest commandment, Jesus never allowed just one answer, but always gave two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. For John... Since God has come in the flesh in Jesus Christ to save the world, then to love God in this new era is to believe in the name of His Son, to accept the one God sent. 
You cannot love God apart from that in John's thinking. So these two are really part of the one great command. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Believe in the name of Christ and love one another. Our belief in Jesus, along with our love for one another, evidences that we are born of the Spirit which God has given us. God is greater than our hearts which condemn us. This solution seems simple enough to state, though sometimes difficult to apply. Trust God who knows all things and who knows us better than we know ourselves. Trust God's transforming power working within by a spirit. Cling to Christ by faith and continue loving one another. Now John turns from the battle within with our own hearts to the battles that come from others on the outside trying to mislead us, to deceive us. God is greater than heretics that deceive. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge this, acknowledge Jesus, this particular Jesus, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Newsflash, not everything that parades itself as truth is truth. After dear friends, or more literally loved ones, John starts this section off with two important commands. Do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do we test spirits? It's an important question. I mean, do we have, like, you know, something they might have had on Ghostbusters? You know, some sort of spirit tester. <laughs> I mean, is that how we test the spirits? No. I mean, please don't answer this affirmatively publicly, you know, privately, whatever. But have you ever seen spirits that you could test them? I mean, kind of the whole idea behind a spirit is you can't see it, right? It's invisible. It's, well, it's my superpower, as we noted earlier. Well, no, we don't have a spirit tester. We don't have anything like that. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God is active among God's people, bringing about various gifts, which might be speaking gifts or sign gifts. But there are also other spirits also activating people to speak, and apparently they can even give signs. So we must test the spirits by testing those who speak in His name. Jesus told us that one of the key tests for a proclaimed prophet uh, or teacher is to see if their lives bear fruit. You know, a tree by its fruit. He was talking about false teachers and false prophets. Do their lives bear fruit? The fruit of doing what Jesus says. In a letter that centers on the command to love one another, First John, the letter we're in, it may seem odd that we must test spirits. Or test those who profess to be led by the Spirit. It's like, well, love one another. Don't test whether they're telling the truth when they say that God told them something. But John says, no, you do need to test whether they're telling the truth. 
These false teachers lead people away from Jesus himself, who is the very source of life. Therefore, they are messengers of death. It would be unloving not to test the Spirit. Amen? Jesus spoke of false Christs. John uses antichrists. False Christs and false prophets. For false messiahs, Jesus said, and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. These antichrists or false Christs, they are false prophets. The, the Spirit always acts in such a way that people so influenced will acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. These other spirits would not confess that Jesus Christ, that confess Jesus Christ, in implication, the one who has come in the flesh. What exactly did these false teachers teach? What exactly was it that was their message that they somehow denied that Jesus came in the flesh? Well, frankly, John doesn't give us many details about what these false teachers were teaching. I mean, we get this line that they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It's long been assumed that since they did that, they were early, fancy word, docetists, which simply those were people that believed that Jesus, God's son, appeared among us but wasn't actually human. If you had a, you know, kind of like put your hand through him, it would have just gone right through him because he was in appearance. He wasn't a physical body. He wasn't actually human. And so they think this is some early form of that false doctrine, which was, of course, a heresy. Maybe, but not necessarily. I think it might be even simpler than that. I think if we look at John's gospel and we ask the question, what did John mean when he said that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh? Well, I've got a few examples. How about... Well, right here in this same letter in chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So when God's Son appeared in the flesh, He came to destroy the devil's work. John 10, 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it extraordinarily. Or how about John 18, 37, before Pilate, Jesus says, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Amen. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. By the way, that was baby for amen. I just in case you were wondering, they yeah, I translated gift of interpretation. Um, don't test that one. Um, <laughs> John five thirty six. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. So Jesus did works when he was here. He came that people might have life and have it extraordinarily. He came to testify to the truth. He came to destroy the devil's works. We could go on and on and on. You know, uh, the, the work that I have to do, that the Father's will, that's the meat that I have. I mean, Jesus talked about this over and over again. There are apparently plenty of people in the church at large today, even the evangelical church, that can talk about the gospel all day long, but never or at least rarely talk about the human life of Jesus or his teaching, his truth, as if those were not, not important to the gospel and, in effect, unessential to the gospel. Scott McKnight, in a book called The, the King Jesus Gospel, gives two examples that... I think capture how many today downplay at best 
the significance of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. At worst, do they deny it by their absence of talking about it? But the first, he, he, he got in an email, quote, the email. I know you're probably really busy. If you, ha- if you have time, I have a question about the gospel. I notice that the gospel writers often include in their gospel the announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. And let me add the other one that people often question the same as this, which is they came and announced the kingdom of God is at hand. And people wonder, what does that have to do with the gospel? And the, the real answer is everything. But we often don't know because of how we're taught the gospel. So my, what does that have to do with uh, the gospel? Uh, what is the good news about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the descendant of David? Scott McKnight says, I, I read that letter three times and shook my head in disbelief each time because I wonder how we have gotten ourselves to a point where we can wonder what Jesus being Messiah has to do with the gospel. But that emailer is not alone. For this emailer, the word gospel is almost entirely about personal salvation. That means the gospel, is no, the gospel no longer includes the promise to Israel that Jesus was the Messiah. The second example, he's at an airport. And um, a pastor that he recognized uh, bumped into him and, and asked what he was writing. And so McKnight answers, a book about the meaning of the gospel. That's easy, this pastor said. Justification by faith. After hearing that quick and easy answer, McKnight says, I decided to push further. So I asked him, did Jesus preach the gospel? His answer made me gulp. No, he said, Jesus couldn't have. No one understood the gospel until Paul. No one could understand the gospel until after the cross and the resurrection and Pentecost. Not even Jesus, I asked. No, not possible, he affirmed. McKnight says, I wanted to add an old cheeky line I've often used. Poor Jesus, born on the wrong side of the cross, didn't get to preach the gospel. I held back. (laughs) You see, for that pastor that he bumped into, Jesus' earthly life, coming in the flesh, was almost unimportant in his version of the gospel. And essentially non-essential. His death, yeah, it's certainly mentionable. But but we're going to chop off the whole... Jesus was born Christmas. Now let's go right to the cross. And what about this whole in-between? Does any of it matter? The way the gospel story is often told, large portions of what are called gospels in our New Testaments are completely left out. They're unessential. Is God's activity in the fleshly human life of Jesus important to your understanding of God's saving activity in the world? Let me ask it again. I think it's in your questions on the back of your handout, so you don't have to write it down. But is God's activity in the fleshly human life of Jesus important to your understanding, to anyone's understanding of God's saving activity in the world? To John, the apostle, the answer is emphatically yes. Remember the theological center of John's letter we talked about two weeks ago, and it's found in this statement in chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Listen, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us both in his life and in his death. He didn't just lay down his life for us in his death. He laid down his life for us both in his life and in his death. Which is important because we are called to lay down our lives for one another. And that doesn't mean we just go out and try to die for one another today and get buried. 
We're going to lay down our lives in our life more than we're going to lay them down in our death more often than not. And we can learn from Christ what it looks like to lay down our life in our life by looking at his life and what was important to him. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love the gospel. Something we talk about here a lot. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's live the gospel. You know how we say love the gospel, live the gospel. They're both right there in the, the chapter 3, verse 16. The false teachers and antichrists that had gone out into the world are the same antichrists that he talks about in chapter 2, verse 19, God bless you, that went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going out showed that they did not belong to us. Listen, when John talks about Antichrist, he's not offering a speculative list of Antichrists who do not need, uh, that, that we need to identify in human governments and try to figure out, I mean, whether it's Mussolini or Hitler or, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 the amount of um, speculation is endless as well as the, um, the, the amount of, of, of slander that's gone on in the name of Christ trying to identify people as Antichrist. He doesn't offer us that. The people that he's saying are antichrist or false Christ were once fellow worshipers, even teachers among them that had to be corrected for their false teaching. Maybe their books were on the shelves of the local Christian bookstore. By the way, booksellers aren't running their list of published books by the apostles before they put them on the shelves. They're just trying to figure out whether or not it'll make some money. These antichrists had eaten with them. They had helped one another when they were sick. These were apostates or heretics, false teachers. And the spirit in them wants to be to, to use them to mislead the children of God. But John has good news. You, dear children, have overcome them in verse 4 of chapter 4. You, dear children, have overcome them. For greater is he that is in you. Not only is greater, God greater than our hearts, God is greater than the misleading tactics of the enemy. How had the greater one in them caused them to overcome these false teachers? You see, we hear that line. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You have overcome them who? These false teachers and antichrist. That isn't just a blanket God. Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. That's Well, that's true. But that's not what John's talking about. John is saying that the one who lives in you is greater than the, the spirit that is in these false teachers trying to mislead and deceive you. And that's why you remain. There's evidence that the greater one lives in you. The fact that you've remained in God's church and have not fled into these various factions and, and, and sects that teach false teachings. The greater one had caused them to overcome the false teachers. Now one overcomes false teaching by knowing the truth. In chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, John explains, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, a charisma from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. The Spirit of God in them, the Spirit of Christ in them, is called an anointing, a charisma. Christ, charisma, you hear the relationship between those words. It's the same root, the anointed one, Christ, there's an anointing in us, in them. Christ in us teaches us not to listen to the lies of false or anti-Christs. In chapter 2.14, the young men overcame the evil one because the word of God remained in them. 
We aren't deceived because God lives in us and makes himself known to us through the scriptures. Greater is the one in us than the one that is in the world. This is not an individual thing, though. And listen, this is important. This is not an individual thing. The anointing remains in you, plural, the community of God's people. Now, why is that important? Here's why it's important. If we don't keep that in mind, we can fall into this dangerous trap that is not uncommon in our day in America, that in the name of being a Berean, you alone become the arbiter of all truth and become completely unteachable. Well, I got to check everything. Against what? Well, what I think is right. Well, that's not being a Berean. That can be being an antichrist. We ought to be wary. Truth, the truth of God's people is learned in the community of God's people called the church. We don't separate ourselves off into our own little enclave because we are the ones who have it all right. Oh, we do strive to get it right. But if we're under the delusion that we have it so much better than anyone else in history and anyone else in our city, well, we're just that, we're deluded. We probably have a few things better than someone else, and they have a number of things better than us. And we need to learn from one another. Amen? And this knowing isn't academic as if we suddenly become more educated. You know all things. No, no, no. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. John's readers were not more learned, more skilled in philosophical debate than the false teachers. Yet, by refusing to be persuaded by the false teachers, they had overcome them. God in them, I would add, enabled them to, be, to not be misled. Well, our hearts condemn us. The enemy wants to deceive us. Our God is greater. He knows, loves, and teaches us by the Spirit of His Son within us. Do you battle thoughts of condemnation, legitimate or not? Do you fear what... The world is coming to wondering how we're going to hold on to the truth in the midst of such darkness. Stay close to Christ's church and you will not get misled. Maybe you've not believed in the name of God's Son, Jesus the Messiah. That is how we must love God today since God has made Himself known to us in Jesus Christ. So let me urge you to turn to Christ, to to examine what God has done in Him in saving the world. It's... It's not that we don't know anything about God from, say, the order or beauty of creation, but we cannot know God's saving grace apart from Jesus Christ. We may well discern some of how he works in the world, but we will not discern how he rescues us and transforms us apart from Jesus Christ. Let me me challenge you today to become a follower, a disciple, a learner. That's what disciple means, a learner of Jesus Christ. You too, then, can overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you assure our hearts because you are greater than our hearts through your grace, your love, and through your light that shines on our lives and shows that we are indeed being transformed. Thank you that You shine light so that we see truth from lies and deceptions that are all around us, even in the church. 
and we cling to the truth. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.